sharper iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, April 19th, we are studying 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. In today's text, St. John speaks of the reasons for which he writes and teaches us to love the Father who abides forever, instead of loving the world, which passes away. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Lucas Witt. Pastor Witt serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Pastor Witt, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be back. Thanks for the invitation. As we get started today, Pastor, give us some context. We're in 1 John chapter 2. What should we know about this epistle, what John has been saying that's going to help us with these words today? Sure. Well, it's convenient. Uh, we call it 1 John because it lets us know pretty directly uh, who is writing here uh, with consensus. Um, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved uh, and who walked along with him. So John at this point uh, is, is later on and seems to be a a leader uh, in the church. Uh, he is kind of a, I envision him kind of like a Yoda figure, pardon the Buddhist connection there, but you know, he is known and he is a leader undisputed by the church. Uh, and he seems to be writing, I believe it's more of a consensus uh, from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor, uh, which I, I think of him as the circuit visitor for, he's kind of uh, hmm. in charge of them, but he's, he's writing to them uh, with concern due to it seems to be some are having other teachings and have uh, talked about, um, you could say, being, being separatists of having a gospel that's different from the one he would teach and has been teaching. Uh, and that's where we've spent uh, the time up to here for the most point. Uh, and today we're going to have a reminder of encouragement uh, for uh, the saints he is writing to as well. So um, one of those things I haven't thought about before, but uh, as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be um, really any reason to say whether John uh, wrote uh, his gospel first or, or these epistles, or at least this epistle first. Um, but it is helpful to, knowing it's the same author, to go back uh, into the gospel according to John and, and see the parallels and help kind of shine light on, on the words and terms he uses. Uh, I found that helpful in going through here. So uh, we have an author who... Um, as I would say, is an epistle that I don't uh, get into very often, but the author uh, is somebody that I would say you know, we, we're very familiar with because he walked with and uh, wrote the accounts of Jesus uh, in, a, in a good portion of Scripture. In our conversation so far on First John, I think you're exactly right to, to say that regardless of the order in which they were written, going to the gospel that St. John recorded for us is certainly a helpful context for the entire epistle, and you see the similar language in both. It's, it's just amazing, the parallels. When you think about the text we're going to look at today, are there any particular places in the gospel of John that you find especially helpful for, for our verses? Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. What are some of the, the words that came to mind? I mean, here in the epistle, he likes talking about overcoming uh, yeah. after this is going to come, uh, words like overcoming and, and we're going to talk about the antichrist, or I should say somebody else gets to, I don't get to have that privilege quite yet. Um, but we're going to talk about overcoming and the world. Uh, those are themes that, that John's talked about. Um, and I believe we'll open up and see where Jesus talked about those terms too, overcoming. Uh, he also has familial terms, um, like fathers and children. And again, I, I went back and, and, uh, right there in John 13, we're, Jesus calls uh, calls his disciples children, um, so there's there's definitely multiple words there that uh, like those that stick out and say, oh, we've seen these in John's gospel and we've we've seen them or we've heard them uh, because Jesus used them, so his disciples are going to use them as well. Yeah, yeah. So okay, overcoming 
We've got the world, these familial terms. I'm sure we'll discover other words that we can make connections to the gospel and other places in this epistle as well. So we turn to the text. We are in 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 today. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's our text for today. That's 1 John 2, verses 12 to 17. So, Pastor Witt, in the, in the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading from, verses 12 to 14 are set off in slightly different type, as if they're more poetic in nature rather than the prose that we've been seeing John write for the most part in this epistle. So let's just kind of talk about that section, verses 12 to 14, as a whole. I think even without the way that the type is set off, you can see some of the parallelism. We've got little children, fathers, young men, and then, yeah. So, and then in the middle of verse 13, you've got children, fathers, young men. Uh, take us through some of the overall structural things, the, the way John talks here. Just take us into the overall nature of those verses. As we go through here, you can see this uh, repetition of, well, three different categories, I guess you could say. Um, he first has an address to children, uh, and then fathers, and then young men. Uh, and then he has a repetition of uh, exhortations to those same groups of people again, to children, to fathers, and to young men. Um, and I'm not completely sure about, you know, what could be a, a purpose or structure uh, behind this, um, but he's clearly uh, retorting himself with, with this repetition of structure. Um, and so each one of them has their own um, encouragement from him as far as uh, why, he is, why he is writing to them uh, and the encouragement that he's given them. I think it's... It's one of those moments to, to uh, if, if John has been, again, kind of up to this point, talking about the contrast of, uh, you know, others are um, going these separate ways. Uh, he's taking a step back and encouraging them that they are in, in the flock, in, in the family um, of the Father of Christ, uh, which is always a good step to take. <laughs> Good step to take back, right? Anytime you're uh, you're cheering and saying, "Oh yes, go get them," and and they're off and drawing those lines, then you want to the question, "Oh, what makes me different from them?" So John calls them these familial terms and repeats through them as kind of set the set the stage for you know you're not you're not like them. Uh, you you are part of the family. You are children and fathers and young men, uh, depending on who you are. Oh. Talk, talk a little bit about the, the familial terms that John uses, and in the sense that we would still use such terms today, and, and why that is an important thing for us as Christians. I, mean, I, I think of, in my own sermons, a lot of times I will begin them you know, with, the, with the greeting of grace and peace, but before I begin my sermon proper, I'll often address it to dear brothers and sisters in Christ, which is a different familial term, but it's still in that, that same ballpark. So talk a little bit more about the, the importance of the familial, the family nature of the church, not, not only as, as John gives it here, but just in general. Yeah, well, from what I can tell, there's not a big, strong consensus of um, exactly which group uh, each of these could be in as far as the terms go. But uh, the terms themselves um, could be open to to a biological term uh, or and I guess I say vocational when it comes to fathers, um, but it could be a stage of life for children, fathers, and young men. 
uh, in, in a physical vocational sense, but it also, also um, some believe it's more of a, a spiritual sense uh, as far as where somebody is at spiritually with uh, a younger one of children, spiritual milk, or fathers, uh, the ones who have uh, are more mature in the faith, and, uh, and young men, you know, the ones who are who are in the middle there. Uh, so you have a, a kind of a, a debate and, and options, and it could be, you know, at times both for, for each of these. But uh, he starts off writing with, with the children. And this one, uh, I, I think of, you know, again, going back to where uh, Jesus comes from, uh, children is kind of an open, um, open term for everybody. You know, and we think of ourselves being under our Heavenly Father. Uh, we are all, and and I guess here's a term I use more often than um, than brothers and sisters maybe is children of God, at least declaring ourselves, sure. you know, us all to be children of God. So when we start off here with, you know, in verse 12 there, when John says, I am writing to you little children, I take that as more of a, a big picture of, of everybody um, who is under the, the grace and love of Jesus Christ and uh, obedient to his ways and, well, forgiven, as he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Um, Jesus used these terms, actually, I am going to turn back here in, in John 13, John 13, 33, just to say how I got there. And if you give me a minute, Pastor Apple, I'm I'm reminding myself no. that people may want to actually, you know, open their Bible and follow along as we're doing this. Sure, that's okay. So I'm holding yeah. myself to open a paper Bible so I'm not just rushing by. Um, that's right. I guess somebody could so, always hit the... So John 13, 33 is the verse we're going to connect to this use of little children. While you're while you're flipping there, Pastor Witt, I just to I want to echo what you're saying about this, this term little children as John uses it. It does seem to me that that's a a very broad-reaching term for all the Christians to whom he's writing, given what you're going to share with us here from John 13, as well as what John wrote earlier in this very epistle in 2 verse 1, he he addressed my little children. So that that familial relationship again, it does seem to be to the the whole group of Christians to whom he's writing. This These would be addresses to, to everyone. So Take us to, to that passage in John 13 and share with us the language that Jesus uses that John echoes. Yeah, so again, the context here is uh, Jesus is um, at his, his last Passover Seder uh, during Holy Week, so we would call this Monday, Thursday, coming up here soon. Um, and you know, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, and then I notice that this is right after John has uh, Judas leaving. Judas, an outsider, leaving, and we're left with you know, the 11 uh, soon-to-be apostles uh, and probably their families around there too. But he says to them in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, and so right there you have where it is probably ringing in John's ears that his rabbi, his teacher, you know, spoke the same way uh, to to his special group too. You know, my dear children. So I can't help but hearing that echo of Jesus doing the same thing, uh, as John writes to. Um, sounds like you have this the same view as me uh, that this is probably towards everybody, um, everybody whose sins are forgiven uh, for the sake of the name of Christ Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think with that familial term, little children. Is, is not here, especially, you know, John doesn't say my little children in this context. In, in a certain sense, of course, these Christians to whom he's writing are his children in the faith. He has nurtured their faith with the word of God, and so he would regard them as children in that sense. But the fact that it's it's not just my little children here, but just little children, and then the way he speaks, your sins are forgiven for his namesake, is a reminder that ultimately these Christians are they are the children of Jesus. They, they belong to him. And as you pointed out, that is a wonderful comfort to us to be called the children of God. And so we are to, to think forward in, in this epistle that's coming up in John chapter three. So I am writing to you, little children, the comfort for the little children in the first part is that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Talk more about that, the reasoning that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Yeah, the, 
when you talk about somebody's name, you know, when we talk about, uh, we do this in the name of Jesus or the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, that's, that's a term of, of authority, um, as Jesus, you know, in whose name or by whose authority do you teach these things? They're, they're asking, you know, where did it come from? Uh, he, he basically says, well, the father and myself, uh, but, um, but the, you know, their sins are forgiven, um, you know, by, by the authority and the reputation of Jesus. That is, that is, he is what foremost came to do is to come into this world. Uh, and when you talk about the name of Jesus, you have to talk about the name by which um, men are saved. All people are saved uh, yeah. because he died for the sins of the world on the cross. So, um, so his, the, what by, there is no other name you can be saved by uh, than the name of, of Jesus that is written. And so it is only by his name uh, that sins are forgiven. And that is what makes somebody, you know, a child of God. Um, which comes out great in our baptism liturgy as a reminder that, you know, you are a child of God because your sins are forgiven uh, for by the name of Jesus and for the sake of what he has done for us. Yeah, yeah. To, to think through John's gospel again in the prologue, John writes about how he gave the right to become children of God to those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the mm. will of man, but they were born of the will of God. So that that being the the little children of God is is his own doing. It comes through the the water and word of baptism as you're making that connection, and it's found in the name of Christ, which again, the way Jesus speaks in that upper room discourse in John 13 to 17, he talks at several places about asking for things in his name, and he will give those things. One of those things in his name is the forgiveness of sins. And, and John here in his epistle reminds those listening and reading your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. That is that is the one on, upon whom you call, the one to whom you confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive and, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Then, then we come to, I'm writing to you, fathers, and then I'm writing to you, young men. And to go, go back there again with who he's talking about, I, I think we're both pretty well on the same page in terms of the the little children being the whole of Christians. With this fathers and young men distinction, there at least, and I'll just throw out what, what it seems to me, it seems to me he is making a distinction between two groups in the congregation. And I've, I've seen two ways of taking this, and I'm not sure which one I, I fall on more. One way is to think of them in terms of just simply age. So the fathers would be the older members of the congregation, and probably including not just fathers, but mothers as well. And then the young men would be the younger members of the congregation. So it's strictly an, an age thing. Another way of taking it would be the maturity in the faith. So it's not necessarily based on age, but perhaps how long you've been a Christian or, or how, how much of the word of God you've, you've grown into. And that would be the difference between the fathers and the young men. And again, including both men and women in those distinctions. I don't know. Do you have a, do you have a thought as to which it might be with the fathers and the young men or, or a third one entirely? No, I I would say that uh, I'm I'm fine kind of saying it could be either or, or you know, enough, yeah. in a sense they come they could come together somewhat. But um, you know I think uh, even as we go through it with with the unknowns, the the bigger thing is the the message behind them of um, you know what he's exhorting them exhorting them with with um, you know the joys that they have and why he's writing them. So regardless of the stance we take on it, I think the uh, you know the bigger part is is the next line for each of them. Okay. So, and I think that's, I think that's perfectly fair. So I'm, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And as it, as it turns out, that's actually the same thing that John writes to the fathers in the second time when he repeats these things. So what's John saying this, you know him who is from the beginning? Yeah, I take that as a, a reference to, well, kind of, uh, I guess you could say a father, father to father connection. I mean, him, whom who is from the beginning uh, is is our Godhead, um, and you can make a case for Christ our Lord. Uh, but when I see those words uh, from somebody who's a you know, a Hebrew writer, um, or this has that background, like John, you know, in the beginning to me says go back to not just the start of of Jesus' ministry, but says uh, go back to Genesis one in my mind. So um, I'm I'm thinking of this. Uh, as you know him um, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
uh, you know that God who is also the God, you know, Jesus, who is there as part of the triune God at the start of creation. So, um, so to me, this is a reminder that you know, you know the very God of all things, uh, of creation, of heaven and earth, uh, in, in saying, from the beginning. Yeah, I think that language of, of from the beginning definitely goes back to Genesis 1 and the ways that John has connected that language from Genesis 1, particularly to Jesus as the Word of God, as the Son of God. I mean, that language of, of from the beginning shows up at the beginning of this epistle and at the beginning of the gospel. And just to quote from the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so I, I think here, for John to call that to mind again, this is this is why I'm writing to you, is because you know the one who's from the beginning. And, man, and just, again, thinking through what John has written already in this epistle, that one who's from the beginning by the way, that's the one that John actually saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears and touched with his own hands in those first couple of verses. That's the one that John has been writing this testimony about. He is giving this apostolic preaching to these people so that they would have fellowship with the ap- with the apostles, with Jesus, with the Father. And, and here, it's like John's calling all that to mind by telling the fathers, the ones who and again, whether it's age or, or maturity, I think it, it fits either way. The ones who who know so very well that, yeah, this is the one who, who we know. We know Jesus, the Word of God, the one who's been there from the very beginning. He's the one that we know. And, and the encouragement to, to stay true to that faith, to hold on to, to Christ in faith. Yeah, and then the epistle, epistle starts with you know, the same, same similar way that you know he's connecting which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched right, with our hands, right? That is the word God, God incarnate. So um, bring that, that full circle. And it's, uh, and he gives that, that exhortation again, down below again, you know, just jumping ahead a touch, but, um, yeah. and I can't tell you if that's, you know, again, if I think I heard somebody uh, you know, one opinion that maybe this is kind of a, a refrain from, you know, a, a confession or a song or something, but um, he reiterates the, the same thing below to the fathers. Uh, you know him who is from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, this is just a beautiful portion of, you know, I think as we talk about you know, law gospels, Lutherans, that, um, again, before there's been, uh, and there's been talk of those who walk in darkness, and here he's saying, get by you, <laughs> you are different, Right. Fathers, my children, you have known him who is from the beginning. You know, blessed are you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that distinction, and and John's going to make that plain as as our text continues with the idea of of do you love the Father or do you love the world? That that distinction of being called out of the world that's going to come up again as, toward the end of our text. So, okay, we've got I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then I'm writing to you young men, so either those who are literally younger or perhaps those who are less mature in the faith. John says he's writing to them because they've overcome the evil one. There we come to that word overcome. You mentioned that this is an important one for John's writings in the scriptures. Talk to us about what's being said here. You have overcome the evil one. Well, overcoming the evil one is really rooted in in what we've been talking about all along. To you know, to overcome the evil one is not something that men can do on their own, um, but is by by being a a child of God, you know, who has had sins forgiven. This is this is how we uh, overcome the evil one. That the the consequences of sin, uh, which is death, uh, no longer has a stranglehold on us. Um, and by the Holy Spirit, we have been given a new life. So, this isn't, um, you know, even as a as a perfect tense um, is not pointing to perfect obedience or perfect actions, but uh, the fact that they are um, outside of the reign of the evil one, of Satan, um, and have a new a new king. It's you know a good. A good parallel is, you know, Israelites come out of Egypt. You know, they were they were literally under the the control and the overlord of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Um, uh, but when God brought them out, uh, 
had them cross the Red Sea, you know, he made very clear that you know, it used to be under the control of, of the gods of Egypt. You know, he talks this way, um, but, but not anymore. You know, I have purchased you. I have redeemed you. You are mine. Um, you know, and so in the same way, you know, the, the, the young men um, may rejoice because they also have a new master uh, who is not bound to sin and death, but uh, is bound to everlasting life with, with Jesus. Mm. Yeah, and and so the language of overcoming being brought out, this is a, a victory that has been won by God and given to his people. Jesus says in the in the gospel, I believe it's in, in chapter 16, he talks about he's the one who's overcome the world. In, in John 16, yeah, verse 33, take heart, I have overcome the world, to use that language of overcoming. And thinking about the, the evil one, Jesus says in John 12, it's in verse 31, the ruler of this world is cast out. So that that is how this victory belongs, even to the young men, and even to those who are immature or younger, whichever it is, this victory belongs to them because of what Jesus has done in overcoming the world and in casting out the ruler of this world by his own death and resurrection, this has been given to them. And so this encouragement is given to the whole church to those who are mature or older, to those who are immature or younger, this encouragement is to the whole church that John is writing to them to keep them grounded in this word of Christ, the word that he is writing. We're going to pick those themes up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Lucas with this morning about 1 John chapter 2. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 19th. We're studying 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17 with Pastor Lucas Witt. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Pastor Witt, prior to the break, we were looking at this section in which John encourages those to whom he's writing. We're really in the second rotation now where John says, and this is the end of verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. Now, notice that it is children. It's a different word than previously in verse 12 in the Greek. It's their little children, children, but probably the same idea. I write to you, children, this time John says, because you know the Father. How does that, how does that connect? What is John saying? Well, I, I think the, the children being, uh, being known or knowing the Father is you know, pretty, yeah. Pretty common term there, where you know, a child has a father, right? There is there is not a child in this world <laughs> without a father. So um, it also uh, makes me think of you know how does somebody know the father? And uh, it makes me think again, going back to to Jesus' words, where he says, um, you know, he who has has seen me has seen the father, right? There's our, our there our advocate is Jesus again. Of um, you. You know Jesus, you know the Father. You know the Father, you know Jesus. Uh, and so, again, to be a child is to be somebody who is, um, who knows the Father, and and maybe even better, you could say the Father knows them. Right, and, and again, that connects to what he wrote in the first half of this, that the little children are those whose sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. And so in connection with that, they know the Father truly because they've been connected to the Son. Now, as we mentioned before, when he writes the second time to the fathers, he speaks the same thing, because you know him who is from the beginning, that is Jesus, the word of God, the one who is from the beginning. You know him, fathers. You've known him for a long time. Then he writes finally again to the young men, and this time he, he says more. Previously, he said to the young men, you've overcome the evil one. This time says, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, 
and you have overcome the evil one. So some similar themes from before, but he expands on that. Take us into that last part of verse 14 of our text. Yeah, and um, I think that when you go into the uh, the strength of how they overcome the evil one, um, he makes very clear here, right? You are you are strong by the word of God abiding in you. That's where your strength comes from, uh, and that is how you have overcome the evil one. So it's it's building upon. You know, step one is realizing you have come to overcome the evil one. He kind of fills in the gaps, uh, really like we do in school, right? You start with something more simplistic and then you add, uh, really add more in the as you go along. But he's reminding them, where does this, how have you overcome the evil one? Uh, and is the word of God that abides in you has has made you strong. Um, so the, the classic song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know comes to mind. And... Uh, of that song reminds us that you know I am weak, but but He is strong, and that is where the young men get their strength is by you know the strength of Jesus that comes from abiding in His Word. That is how the evil one is overcome, and and the world as well as we go there. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's really important what you said about the the strength that the young men have, which is, and I think it's important because you know when you think about a young man especially maybe in contrast to, say, the fathers, those who are younger are going to have more physical strength. But that's that's not his point here. It is the strength that comes from having Christ so that when we are weak, in fact, he is strong for us. The language of, of the song, which is a wonderful thing for us to, to remember and to sing, and also the language that, that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong because of him. He's the strength for us. And that is the victory that overcomes the evil one. And it's because that word of God abides in us. That that language of abiding is another key word that John will use, especially in his gospel. Jesus speaks that way about abiding in his word. And that is our strength. That is what gives us the victory over the evil one, not our own strength, but the strength that belongs to Christ, that he has won the victory for us. So that, that takes us through the first section of our text in which John encourages those to whom he's writing, the whole church, those older, those younger, those more mature, those less mature. He encourages them with all that they have in Christ. From that encouragement, then, he exhorts them not to love the world or the things in the world. So that's the start of verse 15. What is, what is John saying there? What does it mean to not love the world or the things in the world? What's he warning against? Yeah, he's warning against going after the temporary things, basically. Um, you know, at some point he'll talk about how, you know, the world and everything in it is is passing away. And so we, we need to make a distinction here of, um, you know, <laughs> I, well, going back to John, I guess that's a good practice for us here. Right, John three sixteen. God so loved the world, right? Mm. Um, but here, when he talks about uh, not loving the world or the things of the world, it's basically the the short term ways of the world and the aspirations. So, um, the way Jesus talks, like like you said before in John uh, John sixteen, uh, verse verse fourteen, uh, he he says, you know. I have overcome the world. I might have that reference wrong, yeah. actually. Um, but Jesus I think says, that's toward not, the end of the chapter. The yeah. About verse 33 or so. John 16, verse 33 is where Jesus says, I fear not, I have overcome the world. Okay, yeah. I was going to say it didn't quite sound, sound right there. But um, you know, when Jesus is talking to Pilate, uh, uh, when he's on trial, and Pilate is asking him, you know, you're a king, you're a king, and where are you from? And and Jesus tells him, you know, if if my kingdom, yes, I'm a king, but if my kingdom were of this world, you know, if this world and its ways and its power structures, and, and that was my concern, then I'd have all kinds of servants fighting for me. But but my my kingdom is not not of this world. I'm not after the the power um, that's happening right here. I'm not after the the riches and and the glory of this this temporary world. I'm not after the things that that moth and rust will destroy. 
Um, you know, I'm not after the, the prestige and the privilege uh, that we are told to chase after. Um, you know, I'm, I'm after the things of the eternal kingdom of my father. And so that's the, the distinction uh, that's, that John is giving here is, um, you know, love people of the world <laughs> and, and love the goodness uh, in the world that God has created because he made it good. Um, but, but do not love the world as far as the world seeks its own sinful ways. Uh, that is that is not what you are going after. That's the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. So just a, a pastoral application kind of question then as we think about what John says about not loving the world or the things of the world, and yet at the same time recognizing, you know, the first article of the creed, that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that he's given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, he still takes care of them, and he does these things out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy. Thinking about this pastorally, and you know, a question that, that either of us might might receive is, well, how how do I know when I've, I've crossed this line from giving thanks to God and, and rejoicing in the gifts that he's given and using them appropriately to the, the love of the world that John warns against here. How do you, how do you discern when you're, you're starting to cross that line from a proper use of the things of this world and a proper joy at God's gifts to this sort of a attachment or allegiance that John's warning against? How do you, how do you walk that line? Uh, well, you could, uh, you could ask the question <laughs> that, uh, the, the man did uh, with many things who asked Jesus, and you could say, mm. uh, you know, how, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically said, you have to be willing to give it up. Uh, if, mm. if that is what's the proper thing to do, um, could you, are you going to love what, love God uh, more than loving what you have in this world? So I think that's a good question to ask. Um, and again, it's not, not saying that we need to become poor and homeless. Uh, but it's a question of um, if this is, you know, where, where is my, my love? Um, well, can I give it up for, for the sake of what God uh, is calling me to do? Could I do that? Um, do I need to do that? Uh, gouge out my eye or cut off my hand uh, to inherit the eternal life? Um, so that's one way. And I, I guess I always, uh, I always ask also, is this glorifying God over glorifying me? Um, is is other question I ask when I'm doing something, pondering something, and deciding whether it's you know possessions or or the desires and pride of life, uh, and, and even the sense of trying to you know appear um, righteous or right or or cool to somebody uh, is is this something where I can say, you know, I am a representative of of Jesus Christ, um, and say that proudly that. That, that is why I'm acting the way I am, and that is the attitude I have. So uh, I'll, if you'll indulge me, I, I thought this was a, a moment I could share today. Um, not my own experience, but uh, I was spending a moment um, on, I think it was Facebook yesterday, and, and reading uh, what a friend had reposted from somebody else. And the story was how somebody was uh, going through... I doesn't matter which drive through, but let's just say McDonald's for the sake of something concrete. Um, and so this guy's going through McDonald's and, and he uh, is in line and apparently a, a lady behind him in the car is, is uh, just honking and, and yelling curse words at him as he's ordering. Apparently um, he's, he's taking too long. And so he finishes his order uh, and what he does is he goes to the drive through window and he pays, he has to, to pay for his, and then he pays uh, for the next order, the lady behind him, uh, who is, is you know, yelling or cursing or honking or whatever else, because he's, he's just taking too long in, in the line. Um, you know, and then he says, he, he looks back and you know, her, her eyes will no longer meet his. Uh, and I thought that is, that is a, a great, great illustration of something I would be challenged to do you know, and showing love for, for somebody else and overlooking what I would want to do as a desire of the flesh and get revenge. Now, that's great. Um, and, then, and then at the end, it basically, basically says that uh, what we actually did do <laughs> in a twist of the story where I was like, that's a great story, um, is, is because he had the receipt for paying for the lady's food, uh, 
he basically said he was entitled since he paid for the food. So he got his food and her food and drove off and that should teach her a lesson. Um, <laughs> and I thought, what a, what a great, con what a, I mean, what a horrible twist, but what, what a contrast of what my sinful nature and my, my uh, loving of my ways of the world would say to do, right? There was cheering. But like the comments were basically like, yeah, you got her, you show her and great, great idea, yeah. you know? And I thought, oh, that's a distinction because the world says, yeah, stick it to him. That's the way to do it, right? Um, it reflected on me that I thought, oh, you know, that was a great story until, until that happened because that's exactly the way to love other people um, uh, yeah. in contrast right. with the world so said to do. So, so to, to summarize some of the, the diagnostics, one, one diagnostic to, to see, are we, are we loving the world in the way that John's talking about is, is what are we willing to, to give up or to lose? And if there's something that we're unwilling to lose, that's a sign that that could be coming and be becoming an idol for us when that's not the true God, when the, when it's not our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ and his word that could be coming an idol. And so that, that can start to cross the line from rightly using and giving thanks for the gifts that God gives us in this created world to making them an idol and loving them and following after the desires of the flesh. And then another diagnostic is, is this giving glory to God or is it giving glory to me? And, and how do we know? Well, compare that to the word of God. Are we, are we holding on to his words and keeping them and cherishing them so that we believe them and seek to live holy lives according to them? Or are we going the way that our flesh would desire to gratify our own sinful desires? Those would be some, some diagnostics as to how we know if we're starting to love the world and the things of this world. Because John says, if we do love the world, then the love of the Father does not, does not dwell in us. And I think you know, that, if I can, we've been going back to John quite a bit, but that reminds me especially of the way Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, that you can't serve two masters. And really, I mean, you, you brought up the matter of idolatry. I think that really comes into play here that if you, if you love the world, then the love of the father gets pushed aside. You can only serve one God. And in the first commandment, God teaches us to love and serve him alone. When we start to love or serve the created things of this world, we're pushing God from his rightful throne and we're starting to worship an idol. And that's the danger. It seems John is warning us against here. Yeah, yeah, I'd say you sum those up very concretely in what I was trying to say there. And, um, you know, kind of a, a contrast from the other angle uh, from from my a bit of a long story there was, um, uh, you know, you, we analyze first and foremost by the, the word of God and, and what he tells us. But, uh, you know, if if the, the world seems to be cheering, <laughs> what, what you know is the ambitions of the world are basically you know, uh, cheering for what you're doing. Um, that's another way to to wonder if if you know the direction is right or um, or if there may be another uh, something else to to analyze as far as you're going the wrong direction. Hmm. Yeah, talk talk more about the things that John lists in verse sixteen. He really helps to define what he means when he says all that is in the world, and he lists the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. Talk about those things that John is warning against there, the, those three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions. Yeah, well, I think the simplest one there is the, the, the second one, the desires of the, of the eyes. Um, and we think, you know, biologically, physiologically, uh, right? Things, things we see um, that are placed before us are it's maybe the quickest impulse to to be able to have something that is in front of us or, or somebody else has. Um, so that, you know, the, the ninth and 10th commandments come to mind of, of coveting or, or seventh of, of stealing, uh, you know, what is placed right before us, um, just part of our, our carnal nature. Uh, the desires of the flesh, um, again, are really the, well, it could be a sexuality, um, type thing, uh, it's when John talks about the flesh, uh, tends to be things that are more more temporary as well, and then the pride, pride is really a uh, excitement for what we uh, tend to want to do in our lives. Um, so if we have 
know, pride in, in the life of Christ. Um, that is the joy that he has given us, but uh, the pride that, that we have in our own works and own actions, you know, those, those are a trifecta of three, three things that are, are self-centered of the world. Um, and as it says, is, is not of the Father. So what we're commonly surrounded by um, as temptations in our lives, this is really three ways to, to talk about that. Mm. The, one of the, the things that stuck out to me in those three was that one, the desires of the eyes. And, and I, I didn't look at the Greek, and especially not the Greek of the Septuagint, to, to see if this was a, a verbal connection, but it, at least it, it echoed in my mind the idea of the desires of the eyes reminded me of, of what happens in Genesis chapter 3 after the serpent speaks to Eve and she's about to eat. Uh, among the things that the text says there, and this is in Genesis 3 verse 6, it says the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And I, this, you know, the idea of the fruit being a delight to the eyes, and John talks about the desires of our eyes here, made me wonder if, if maybe there's a, a connection to, to draw between the two that includes then not only the the covetousness that you talked about which is a great connection but connects that covetousness covetousness then further to the idolatry that's inherent in there that that the woman looked at the fruit and saw it was a delight to her eyes even though it, it really shouldn't have been a delight to her eyes because the Lord had told her the fruit was not good that the fruit would bring death upon her yet she saw it with delight, Perhaps here, I, I don't know. There's there's been some other places in this epistle where I think John's making reference to Genesis chapter three, and I, I'm just wondering if maybe this could be another place where we might make that connection, so that the desires of our eyes, we're desiring things that we see, even though God has warned us against them. I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting, um, interesting thought there. I'm just trying to to think of a, a deeper progression there because uh, I I like that with the eyes. I, I think this this happens all over the place. What I call you know hyperlinking <laughs> of these words, but yeah, if you have the desire of um, of you know the the sinful nature there, and that's there, and even then it comes, um, you know, and, and the eyes look up, and so the, the inside is poised for for selfish desire, and then the eyes look up um, and see something desires in in the tree, and then the pride, you know, the pride of of this world of life says. You know, oh, why doesn't God give me that, or why can't I have that? Mm -hmm. And I believe it's Saint Augustine who who talks about the first sin being pride. So uh, that's an intriguing progression um, to to kind of put in the mold of of right there in the garden. Yeah, yeah, no, and I I like the way you 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 drew a progression. I was really just kind of thinking about the middle one, but to to draw those connections, I think is I think is helpful. So once again, Saint John gives us plenty to to chew on in these short words that he has. Now, he, he says then that all this that's in the world, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And I, I do think, you know, that idea from the world is the key, that it, it comes out of the, the desires of the world, not the desires of God. And again, to, to help us keep those distinctions in mind, that what God gives us in this creation is a good gift of his, but when we use it in ways that do not come from him, that's when we are using it according to the ways of the world, that which is opposed to God and his will. And, and John makes the point in verse 17, and I think this is really important, that the world is passing away along with its desires. So all of these things that we think will be good, the things that we think will last, John, John puts it right in front of us. Those things are actually passing away. Those desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Talk about that that contrast that John draws there in verse 17 of our text. Well, it's, it's pretty laid out there straightforward. Like you said, <laughs> uh, Pastor Apple, that, um, you know, where, where's the distinction? Uh, where's the distinction between those two? And I guess we have a comma there in English, but um, you know, the world is, is passing away. You have the world called passing away. Um, but then the last word there in the sentence uh, of, of verse 17 is forever. So you have the contrast of, of what's, what's the difference there? Well, everything that is tied um, to the ways of this world is, is temporary and not going to last no matter 
uh, how long the, the warranty is, no matter promising, um, no matter what, uh, what, what promise there is to that desire. Um, you know, even if, if Jesus had, uh, bowed down to Satan to inherit, you know, the kingdoms of the earth, um, you know, even, even with Jesus as their king in that situation, you know, they're there to pass away and these things are passing away and this world is passing away the way it is. Um, uh, but but to to abide with God forever, you know, is is to be according to His will. That is His will for us, uh, and that is uh, that that is the the grace of Jesus Christ. That um, you know, the promise that that we will abide with God forever, and in that promise is we will do His will uh, perfectly, perfectly uh, with with no exception uh, by the grace of God. Um, so that, it's, a, the, it's a good reminder. Yes, for sure. The The thought of the one who does his will here takes my mind back to the, the words of Jesus in John chapter 6 in his Bread of Life discourse. He, he talks about, let's see, uh, where did it go? Well, this is it's maybe not quite the exact same language, but in John 6 verse 28, the people there ask Jesus, what must we, we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, which is that I would connect that to this, this will of God and doing the will of God. It is to believe in, in the one that he has sent, to believe in Christ. That, and that is what it means to do the will of God. To, to love the world is not to believe in Jesus as the one that the Father has sent. And so to, to be among those who would not last along with this world that would pass away but to do the will of God is to, to put your trust in Christ, to abide. That, that language of abiding shows up there again in verse 17. The word of God abides in you in verse 14. That is how you do the will of God. And so abide in God and you then abide forever. Pastor Witt, we've got about a minute left here. Help us to wrap things up. Give us good news here from this section of 1 John chapter 2. <laughs> Uh, well, I was just reflecting as you were saying that on John chapter 6, verse 38, when Jesus says, I, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So uh, the good news here is that in contrast to the will of the world um, that John was, was uh, saying is, is going away temporarily, uh, the good news is that uh, we who uh, are called children of the Father uh, through the, the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, we uh, are part of his family and can be and have been have been placed to follow his ways and his will um, and not the ways of the world and we'll get to do that forever forever and ever. Pastor Lucas Witt is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. He's been helping us today to study First John chapter two verses twelve to seventeen. Pastor Witt, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the first epistle according to St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.